Previously on Murder at Ryan's Run. We lost Gary to move. We waited too long to act. You need to get your son out of Move's influence by any means necessary. These are people took cult leader lessons firsthand from John F. can't imagine having to act on any warrants on anything dealing with the MOVE organization if I was a police officer. This is MOVE versus the police. This is MOVE versus the courts. This is MOVE versus the government. By them not allowing people to become MOVE members, one, it makes it more alluring because you always feel like, well, if I work hard enough and I prove my loyalty enough, maybe I'll be the, the one person they make an exception for. All of this is about money. I'm Beth McNamara. This is Murder at Ryan's Run. As a cult member, you do what you're told. In the last episode, you heard about John secretly marrying a woman named Rosario from the Dominican Republic. They get married in Elkton, Maryland, the quickest place you can get married in the area. And then it's believed that Rosario leaves, goes back to the Dominican Republic, but starts a process for John to sponsor Rosario for some kind of level of U.S. citizenship. John then files for an annulment, which doesn't go through. So when he's murdered, Rosario is his legal widow. John had an insurance policy. Life insurance is worth about 180000 It's The money went to her. So Rosario is $180,000 richer and on her way to becoming a U.S. citizen. The podcast hasn't been able to locate Rosario. And the only mention of her we have seen in investigative records is from an undated page in the heavily redacted FBI file obtained through our Freedom of Information request, where it mentions that Rosario is approved to renew her visa by bringing a copy of John's death certificate to the U.S. consulate in the Dominican Republic. The whole Rosario secret second wife reveal comes to light just five days after John's murder on September 26. So we're going to pick up there and remind you that the podcast has not had access to the case file on John's murder or the assigned detectives on the case. All our information is coming from our own independent investigation, interviews, research, public reporting, and document requests. And the following days, weeks, and months of the year 2002 is definitely an important period of time we want to analyze with regard to possible persons of interest, people in our story, people in John's life, and of course, the official investigation. I'm going to start with John's work life at U.S. Air. John started working at U.S. Air when he was just 22 years old. He was a good worker and been promoted up to supervisor. And while he was a very private person, he was also very well-liked by his coworkers. He was definitely focused on doing his job. He was a good supervisor. He wasn't overbearing. He was well-spoken and he was respectful to any of his subordinates. This is Gunny, a co-worker of John's for 10 years. You've heard him speak previously on the podcast. Gunny is his nickname, not his real name. Can you describe for me the response from the his co-workers, his employees, and people at U.S. Air when John died? A total shockwave. And then it was the theories that came out. And the theories all led to one thing, that he was killed because... He was getting to the point where he was going to successfully be able to spend time with his child. It's very sad that this kid did not get to know his father. It's very sad that a young man was cut down in the prime of his life. U.S. Air holds a memorial for John Gilbride just four days after his murder on October 1st. People spoke about their feelings about him. More than 100 employees gather with the Gilbride family who they've flown in. And they paid for all of our travel expenses out to eat, and then they had a big meal there. You know, the union did. 
The Courier Post runs a story about the memorial on October 2nd, along with a photo of a coworker and friend of John's who gave an interview for the story, quoted as saying the only thing he wanted to do was to have his child with him. This coworker then receives a letter from Move. I have a copy of it. October 2nd, 2002. To Union U.S. Airways. From Move. To, and it lists the man's name, which I'm not going to share, For once in your lives, you all need to be fair. Stop being misguided by hate, racism, and unreasonable suspicions of all people who's outside your union. In this particular instance, the MOVE organization. John Gilbride may have been one of your union members and a co-worker, but what does that have to do with the man himself behind closed doors in his personal life? Nobody in this society ever shows their true face outside to the public or in their workplace. This is a well-known fact, not something MOVE is just making up. We believe you know it too. We also know that you want to think and say only good things about John, especially now. And we're not faulting you for that. If that's how you feel about John, then you should express it. But you don't have to call MOVE, John's former wife, and his young son liars. The letter goes on, but you get the gist of it. I will put the whole thing up on Instagram for this episode, along with an audiogram of me reading the entire letter. This move letter seems to have achieved its goal of shutting this guy up because he never speaks to the press again. And the podcast has left multiple unreturned phone messages for him. I even try through other US Air coworkers to get a message through to him. And one person does reach him. This is former US Air employee and friend of John Gilbride, Bob Rogers. They didn't want to get involved uh, because of who your organization is. Fear. Gunny has only been willing to use his nickname because of his fears. This particular situation is a very political, racial hotbed issue, and there are people who legitimately would fear for their families because of the brutal way John was killed. I don't want to put any of my family in jeopardy. Someone who would kill a man that way has no conscience. As far as the investigation, was anybody at U.S. Air interviewed who had worked with John that night? Do not know. I will tell you that if it did not involve actual airline business, the airline's not going to be involved. From public reporting, it seems that detectives from Burlington County Prosecutor's Office are following all leads and are, of course, aware of the contentious custody battle prior to John's murder. They want to talk to Alberta, Africa, and other MOVE members. But they're all in Philadelphia, which obviously New Jersey has no authority there and would need cooperation from Philadelphia. And remember, this is what Jack Gilbride was told at his first meeting with detectives. They had a, a meeting with the Philadelphia police, and it didn't go well. They did, weren't cooperating. Did they give you any specifics? Beyond that, no. Just eight days after John's murder, on October 5th, the Philadelphia Daily News runs this story by reporters Egan and Davies. Headline, Move to Keep Barricades Up. Members fear parents of murdered John Gilbride may try to visit son Zachary Africa. The same judge, Shelley Robbins knew, that had decided to give John unsupervised visitation with Zachary, had also signed orders for John's parents, Jack and Francis, to have visitation at Alberta's house and then to have Zach visit their house in Virginia. But still, this MOVE member, using the name Chuck Africa, says this to the reporters, quote, We're not sure if it's over. Police have not asked to search the house but we've heard that investigators may show up with a search warrant. We don't trust any part of the system, and we don't know what his parents are going to do. MOVE supporter Lori Allen has been out in front of MOVE headquarters with her eight-month-old daughter every day since John's murder. Did you see Alberta when you went over there on the 27th? No. Did you see her on the 28th? No. When was the next time you actually saw her? I don't remember. It was not right away. 
they were locked down for a couple of weeks. We just got an update. She was okay. Zach was okay. But that was it. She didn't come out the doors. So while you were out front of King Sessing and the media was there, the police didn't show up insisting on talking to anybody? No. And that was the eerie thing. All the supporters should have been brought in. All the movement members, we all should have been brought in there and, and questioned immediately. None of us were. Everybody was waiting for that. It never happened. The MOVE narrative for 30 years has been that the police are always out to arrest them, set them up, destroy them, kill them. And that narrative is what has garnered supporters like Lori and Tony. But after John's murder, both of them are having doubts. We did talk a little bit because as husband and wife, you're going to be a little bit more open. But even then, it's still guarded because, you know, anything Tony said or anything I said, if we didn't like it and we talked to Sue, we're going to have a meeting. So we were even guarded with each other about what we might be thinking. Your relationship with Move took precedence over your marriage. Oh, God, yeah. So even though Tony and Lori Allen are unnerved by the Gilbride murder, doesn't mean they stop taking activities. They're both busy writing statements and letters to the editor, supporting Alberta and Move. This is one from Lori. Here's my question. Where is the concern for John Gilbride, his son, or his ex-wife? Why has the media been so gentle in their questioning of the police investigation? If Move is so obviously guilty, why haven't the police even questioned one single Move member or supporter a full week after John's death, when everyone has publicly stated they would have no reservations in answering questions in relation to this murder case? The police are being more tight-lipped than usual. The press does not even know the details of how the murder took place or what weapon was used. There are no witnesses. Where do you get off accusing Move of anything? May you one day be judged so fairly. Move has had two deadly confrontations with police at their headquarters, 78 and 85. And with the slats still up and the banner about the custody case just being an excuse for cops to kill Move babies is still hanging on the front of the headquarters, Lori's email to the press is just cover, spin, and distraction. New Move supporter, 20-year-old Ellie Liz, is also given the activity of writing letters to the editor. I have never felt so embraced by anyone until I met Move. I came from a suburban white middle-class neighborhood. I plan to marry a man who practices Move's beliefs and to raise our children in the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I vaguely remember writing that. And at the time, I would have meant a lot of that because I hadn't really been around that long to start seeing stuff. They would have shielded me from like a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff at that point. And I think they saw this college girl and they, if they could get me to write these things, it would give them like a credit. Rhea did help me write that. She would have read it and then tweaked it a little bit. She was asking everybody to write letters to the editor. I don't think that was the only letter I wrote either. So while Move supporters like Ellie Liz and Lori are putting out pro-Move messaging in the press, Move members in prison, their activity is communicating via mail and in-person visits with Move supporters. I lived in Rochester at the time, and it became one of my activity to visit the women at Cambridge Springs because a lot of other MOVE members and supporters couldn't just because it was that much farther for them to drive. This is former MOVE follower Brad. Brad was lured into MOVE in his early 20s under the false impression that MOVE was like a vegetarian animal rights group, like PETA, but more radical. Brad says he visited imprisoned female MOVE members Janet, Janine, and Debbie Africa at Cambridge Springs after John Gilbride was murdered. And he says that all three women brought up John Gilbride. 
that his death was something that happened because move was in line with natural law. Mama provides for those who do their work. Move is strong. This is the universe rewarding move by taking away this threat. The letters from incarcerated move members mentioned that they were calling headquarters after the murder. They were being sent news clippings about the murder. One letter from Debbie Africa, Witt and Mike Jr.'s mom, says, quote, It is too bad that Gilbride did not listen to Move and Bert, and not his parents, because if he had listened to Move, he would still be here, unquote. Supporter Kevin Price receives quite a few of these Move prisoner letters referencing John Gilbride's murder, and he also receives a visit from Burlington County detectives one day at McNaughton's Landscaping Company in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, where he's working. I answered only in Move rhetoric and didn't engage in any logical fashion, and there was another supporter and three other Move members there, so that, that they did not even have a chance of getting anything useful, uh, and we all refused to go to the station. Kevin remembers that this was just a few days after the D.C. snipers were apprehended, and that was on October 24th. Kevin says that he specifically has this date memory because co-worker, Move member Mike Africa Jr. said to the detectives that maybe John was shot by the D.C. sniper. A few weeks after that, the main detective showed up at my house when I was home alone. Kevin lives at Gary Wonderland's house. His driver's license and car registration is not at that address. So how is it that detectives know he lives there? He just said, are you willing to talk? And I said, no. He gave me his card and he left. Kevin Price reports directly back to Rhea and Alberta about both of these police visits. Seems like New Jersey detectives are trying to get people to talk, but not having any luck. And they're not releasing any information to the press. While Captain Bill Fisher from Philadelphia Police is telling city paper reporter Howard Altman this, quote, If I was the assigned investigator, I would take a long, hard look at Gilbride's personal life before venturing to look into move. It would shock me if they had anything to do with this. It is a mess to tell you the truth. I hope for the sake of a lot of people that move is not involved in this. The reporter asks him why, and he says... All you have to do is go back in history to see what's happened. There is no easy solution to this. Besides, Gilbride's murder may be a little too convenient. If I were a teacher and a student handed in a term paper with that story, I would hand it back to them for being a total fantasy. Up to this point, it seems that those who could have a motive for murdering John are his ex-wife, Alberta, over the custody case, and his new wife, Rosario, for the life insurance payout. But then Jack Gilbride tells me about a search for financial documents. John had said he had paperwork to prove. Pam manipulated the money. There was some thought that John had multiple lockers at U.S. Air. Where Detectives search John's locker at U.S. Air at the Philadelphia International Airport. The detectives were in high search for that paperwork, but never found anything. Jack Gilbride says that they even cut into the drywall in John's apartment, thinking that John may have hidden the papers in the wall. But never found anything. Could these financial papers be about the $2.5 million trust from the wrongful death settlement awarded to the MOVE parents of the five children who died in the deadly May 13th confrontation? Alberta is not a beneficiary, but as the leader of MOVE is the trustee, and the family court custody case transcript indicates that Zachary was made a beneficiary, even though he was born 11 years after 1985. And sources in MOVE have alleged Alberta has quite lavish spending habits. This is Mario Africa. 
a huge home. She was traveling to France. She was traveling around the globe, all over Europe, spending tons of money, extravagant you know, jewelry. There were literally furs, not fake furs, but fur furs. Fur coats definitely contradict the alleged move belief in protecting all life, especially animals. And considering that Alberta doesn't have a job or income, there has always been the question, is Alberta, just the trustee, personally benefiting from the trust? She was sitting on top of all this money, and all this money belonged to other people. The other people are the parents of the five children who die on May 13th. They were all in prison on May 13th. At the time of the $2.5 million settlement, they are still in prison, but Alberta is out. She was literally spending their money. When Rhea gets released from prison, she benefits from the trust by being adjacent to Alberta all the time. When Consuela Dotson is released from prison, she makes multiple attempts to claim for herself the $1 million paid out for the death of her two teenage daughters, Katricia and Zanetta. Consuela's efforts are squashed. She was beaten down and thrown out and threatened and abused so that she couldn't get any of the money while Bert was living in the lap of luxury. This is Wit Africa. I remember somebody said if she don't do her work, Work, don't stop violating, they're going to put her in a compost. She's only good for a good, strong piece of dirt, which means they're only good enough for death. They're only good enough as fertilizer for the ground. Just dig a hole and bury her in the backyard. It came from Bert and Rhea. That had something to do with her wanting her money out of the trust. She was nervous about being in the house during a custody battle. She didn't want to be there. And if she had her own money, she could go buy herself a house or an apartment and live safely. But they didn't want to give it to her. So she got a lawyer. And I was told that the lawyer said, once you sign your money over to somebody, that's it. And she was saying she was in jail at the time and she didn't know who to give it to. She couldn't trust nobody. She thought she could trust Bert with her money. The only way to verify these allegations, that funds from the trust were withheld from Consuela Dots in Africa, and that threats were part of that, would be to ask Consuela herself. But that's not possible, because unfortunately, she passed away in June 2021 after contracting COVID-19. My name is Lionel Dodson. I'm the son of the late Consuela Dodson. My other two sisters, they're much older than me. One was Katricia Dodson. The other was Zanetta Dodson. They died in the bombing 1985 at 6221 Osage Avenue. Lionel contacted me after hearing the podcast. Putting it out there for the record, how to move as a cult, how to coerce people to do what they want, and how to use force to get what they want. Lionel was born in 1976 in MOVE headquarters and was with his mother Consuela in the August 8, 1978 MOVE shootout with police. When his mother was arrested, his maternal grandmother took him out of MOVE to go live with her. And then when she died, he went to go live with his great aunt. My aunt told me that they threatened to come after all of us. They t took her money from 85. Lionel is alleging that MOVE had control over his mother's life and therefore claimed to the trust until her very last breath in the hospital. And that Rhea specifically held that power. Your mom made me power of attorney and it's notarized, but when I asked her to produce it, it never happened. As power of attorney, Rhea was the one making medical decisions on behalf of Consuela. If she passes, she doesn't want to be resuscitated. She don't want lung transplant. She don't want to be operated. Lionel is now asserting that he has legal rights to the trust currently controlled by Alberta and MOVE. I'm next of kin, I'm next in line, not MOVE. MOVE need to be held accountable for their actions. Justice need to be brought upon them. 
So these move financial documents that John Gilbride allegedly had in his possession before his murder and he was going to use in the custody battle could have been the Alberta Wicker Life Trust. And the only people who have a right to access this trust are the beneficiaries, the IRS, and law enforcement via subpoena. The other possibility for these alleged smoking gun financial documents could be about financial donations to MOVE or Mumia Abu-Jamal which would explain why Pam Africa's name was mentioned by John to his father with regard to the documents. So we go digging through newspapers.com and find reporting about a tax investigation into the financial disclosures of the international concerned friends and family of Mumia Abu-Jamal that happened at the height of the Gilbride custody battle. In addition to being the Minister of Confrontation for MOVE, Pam Africa is the chairwoman of the International Concerned Friends and Family of Mumia Abu-Jamal, a group that MOVE has previously stated was established by them on December 9, 1981. The purpose of the group was to raise awareness and funds for death row inmate Mumia Abu-Jamal, who they believe was wrongly convicted and sentenced to death for the December 9, 1981 shooting murder of 26-year-old Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner. Craig McCoy of the Philadelphia Inquirer does some investigative reporting in 1999 and in 2000 on these financials and the group's nonprofit status, and in one story reports an alleged break-in at the group's office, where Pam Africa alleges that key documents about IRS tax exemption papers and information about their contributors is stolen. Is this alleged break-in and the alleged stolen documents related to the supposed financial papers alleged to be in John Gilbride's possession at the time of his murder? It was well known that Mumia was a devoted MOVE supporter well before the shooting. He knew leader John Africa. MOVE has always publicly maintained that Mumia is just a supporter, not a member. This is Pam Africa's daughter, formerly known as Pixie, now known as June. Like my mom's activity is Mumia. Mumia Abu-Jamal is Pam Africa's activity. But then her daughter Pixie and other sources tell me that Mumia himself is a secret move member. If Mumia is a secret move member, what was his activities? <laughs> That's what's very unclear to me. And I don't know what his role was or is or... I don't know why they feel a need to hide it. This is Rain Robbins, formerly in MOVE as Rain Africa. Mumia had access to MOVE historically in a way that other people didn't. Most reporters, most journalists, people in general always had to, even close quote-unquote supporters would have to jump through hoops to talk to Sue in Alberta or to Mumia. He has a direct line to Pam um, and even a direct line to Sue in Alberta. Mumia would call headquarters in the same way the MOVE 9 would. You could see with your own eyes how close he was. So do you believe that MOVE says that Mumia is not a member so that it looks like he's independent and therefore can praise MOVE and they can praise him? Yes, it gives, it lends credibility. Do you think he was a MOVE member on December 9th, 1981? Yes. He had been around for quite a few years at that point. The Free Mumia movement has raked in millions of dollars since 1992. And sources say that money went undeclared because MOVE was never a nonprofit. The International Concerned Friends and Family of Mumia Abu-Jamal was a front created by MOVE for the benefit of MOVE. And Mumia was in on it all because it's his MOVE activity. From online statements and email blasts, 
In interviews with former supporters, the reach and power of the Free Mumia movement was deployed in Alberta's fight against John Gilbride before his murder and in her fight after his murder. The $2.5 million trust was established in 1990. John was in move and then married to trustee Alberta from 1992 to 2000. So he would have been privy to her spending and, of course, their joint tax filings. A big purchase reportedly using funds from the trust was MOVE headquarters in the summer of 1991. Property records show that the property owner is Alberta Wicker Life Trust. That is, until a transfer just this past April to John Zachary Gilbridge Wonderland, Alberta and John's son. John also would have been more than familiar with Mumia Abu-Jamal and everything going on with international concerned friends and family run by Pam Africa. John had never gone to the press during the four-year custody case. But it is believed by one of my sources at the next custody hearing on October 4th that was about Alberta's blatant violations of the court-ordered visitations that John was going to finally speak to the press. If John did have sensitive financial documents, did people know that he had them? Do the detectives on the case have any financial papers in their evidence boxes? The podcast would like to ask questions about these possible financial papers, but to date, both Alberta Africa and Pam Africa have not responded to our messages. I sent a letter directly to Mumia Abu-Jamal in prison. When I don't hear back, I reach out to his current lawyer, Robert Boyle, who got back to me via email with this response. On behalf of my client, Mumia Abu-Jamal, this is to inform you that he declines to be interviewed for your project. So far... In the weeks after John's September 26, 2002 murder, there is a U.S. Air memorial, a wake, a funeral, a big life insurance payout to John's secret second wife, Rosario, a murder investigation, and then an invitation to a wedding. Yeah, I went to the wedding. It was weird. This is Lori Allen again. Even Moose supporters were weird. Like, we were all really uncomfortable with the whole damn thing. The only thing that made sense about it was Gary really loves Zach. Groom is none other than Move Groupie and longtime bachelor Gary Wonderland, the realtor, the guy who lets Move supporters live at his house in New Jersey for free, the nice but odd guy. The blushing bride is Alberta Gilbride Africa. I don't think Alberta loved him whatsoever, but he worshipped her. Lori Allen's husband, Tony, was at the wedding also. In fact, I recently found some pictures that had been developed. Tony's pictures show that this is not a back-to-nature kind of wedding. This is a full-on dressed-up wedding. Gary is wearing a black tuxedo with a red cummerbund and a boutonniere. Six-year-old Zach Gilbride is wearing a white tuxedo. Rhea is wearing a red bridesmaid dress and shawl. Alberta Wicker Gilbride is wearing a full-length white wedding dress with a white veil. She made this face and was she wasn't too enthusiastic. But I, I said, Bert, you look beautiful. And then she acted like she perked up and was like, hey, hey, y'all, everybody would say I look beautiful. And Gary was just like skipping, like, come on, Bert, come on, let's go, Bert. He's always happy when somebody gives him attention, acceptance. This is what 19-year-old supporter Kevin Price remembers. I actually remember her saying to Rhea, do I really have to do this like that? Who attended the wedding as guests of Gary? No one. I seriously doubt that his family knew about it. Gary's mother confirms to me in a phone call that their family was not aware of the wedding and not invited. The ceremony takes place in the front room of MOVE headquarters, with MOVE members and supporters like child psychologist Dr. Suzanne Ross sitting in folding chairs. 
Alberta and Gary cut a three-tiered white wedding cake. And then Laughing Alberta takes a piece of cake and smashes it all over Gary's face. Witt says that after the wedding, that Rhea expresses concern about people asking questions. Rhea was saying people going to have questions and they're going to be saying, oh, that's she's cold hearted. How could she just get married like that, like to another person that fast? So she was like going over like the, just in case those questions came up. And she, and she said, but Bert, they had been divorced three years ago. Like they've been separated. It's not like they were t- still together. Was she saying that to you and others in case somebody came questioning? Yeah, that's what it felt like to me. Like the news people, some people who may not understand, like some of the supporters, because just trying to cover their tracks. Romance has nothing to do with move relationships or partnering up in move. It is decided by leadership and directed by leadership because it's all factored into the overall strategy. Witt says there was even a meeting held to discuss this strategy of Gary marrying Alberta. So they had a meeting and and they went around the room and was asking different people, what did they think about them getting together? A lot of people was quiet. So I said how I felt. Witt says she doesn't think that they should get married. First of all, Gary did not like Bert as far as I knew of. And according to Bert, she said she didn't like Gary. Witt says that the majority view in the meeting is this is not a good idea. And that would probably hurt Gary's feelings if he had been in the room or even aware that the meeting about him was happening. One day I came down King Session and she was all dressed up and they left. And it was like they were sneaking out of there because Rhea was like, she said, shh. This is Friday, November 22nd, and the move activity doesn't include Wit or Tony or Lori Allen, but it does include supporter Kevin Price. Rhea called me, it seems like it was about a week before. There's a really important activity that I need you to do on Friday, November 22nd. There was another phone call. Oh, I forgot to ask you if you have a suit. This get dressed up move activity is the first marriage ceremony for Alberta and Gary. The one I was describing with the pictures, that's the second ceremony that some people think is the only ceremony. I was told that even though Alberta and Gary were going to have a wedding ceremony at move headquarters where everyone would be invited, that they needed to have a legal ceremony for two reasons uh, that were explained explicitly said. The first was that they needed Gary to really take this seriously and be committed because Gary can be wishy-washy about things. And that even though Move doesn't believe in legality, Gary has a lot of systematic training. And if it wasn't a legal wedding ceremony, when things got hard and when the work with Alberto, when the mental work that was going to push him to his limit got hard enough, he would want to leave Work or mental work in MOVE means following MOVE law, which means obeying MOVE leadership without question. So they're talking about Gary's going to be pushed to his limit with his work. So because he was, you know, brought up in the system and um, trained to respect legal obligations, he would be more likely to do the work if he felt like he had made a legal commitment to Bert. And also that he was romantic, and so he wouldn't just want a wedding at a house. He would want an occasion where everyone got dressed up and went out to eat, and it felt more traditional. So we had to do it for that reason, and we had to do a legal ceremony that would like look good on paper because John's parents could possibly file for custody of Zach. 
And if Bert was remarried legally, that would give them some sort of protection and make it harder for the Gilbrides to win a custody case against Bert. Gary is given the activity to legally marry Alberta 57 days after John is murdered, 30 days after the family court judge closes the child custody case because Alberta is now the only parent. And Zach's passport is returned to her. So if Alberta wants to leave the country with Zach, she's free to do so. John's parents have not said anything or filed anything in court indicating that they are going to try and get custody of Zach. So I asked Kevin, why was this legal wedding a rush? Why was it a secret? And why was it held in Maryland? Wow. I didn't really think about that. What is the rush that the, what, couple days longer, Pennsylvania, and I don't even know, I haven't looked into this, but that was part of the thing was we're going to Maryland because they have a shorter waiting time for a marriage license. According to the marriage certificate, Alberta and Gary put in their marriage application two weeks before the secret Maryland ceremony on November 22nd, which is only 43 days after John is murdered. And there were a lot of people who weren't supposed to know about it. I am pretty sure that there were MOVE members like born in the organization who didn't know about it. And for the people who went, like we never talked about it again. I've never, ever talked about that day with anyone. Why was Alberta, Rhea, and MOVE keeping this a secret? That's coming up on the next Murder at Ryan's Run. Remember Carlos talking to him like, the way that someone would talk to someone in a sitcom when they're about to get married and they have pre-wedding jitters. It was a little eerie to see how much he had gained by John's death. Aside from opening FBI documents with Bob, my favorite thing is getting emails and messages from listeners with questions, comments, and their own sleuthing discoveries about the case. Keep them coming. And of course, if you have any information about the murder of John Gilbride or about our continuing investigation, definitely get in touch with us. Our email is murder at ryansrun at gmail.com. Be sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram for photos, documents, and news stories related to this episode and the series overall. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode, be sure to follow the podcast. And if you feel up for it, please rate, review, and share it. Because just maybe the next listener has that missing puzzle piece to solve John's murder. Thanks for listening. This episode is hosted, reported, edited, and written by me, Beth McNamara. Archival research and producing by Robert Helms. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.